welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the endocrine module from the General Surgical Curriculum, and the operation or topics we'll be covering today is thyroid nodules and thyroid cancer. So thyroid nodules are very common. About 60% of people will have a thyroid nodule on ultrasound. The definition of a thyroid nodule is that it is a discrete lesion within the thyroid gland that is either palpably or ultrasonographically distinct from the surrounding thyroid parenchyma. There's an increasing incidence with age, and usually nodules are small, less than one centimetre. 7 to 15% of nodules are malignant, and this rate is higher if the nodule is PET positive. There's a number of different differential diagnoses for a thyroid nodule. In general, this includes both benign and malignant pathologies. Benign pathologies include a benign hyperplasia or follicular nodule, which is the most common type of nodule in the thyroid and is usually part of a multinodular goiter. A benign adenoma is another differential, and this is a benign overgrowth of normal thyroid tissue. Colloid nodules are made up of colloid, as the name suggests, which is the um, stuff that the thyroid hormone is stored in, in the follicles. And you can also get simple cysts within the thyroid, but it's important to know that 6% of PTCs are predominantly cystic, so you want to look for other suspicious features such as a solid component. You can also get inflammatory nodules, um, which can be seen in focal areas of lymphocytic thyroiditis. In terms of malignant thyroid nodules, the most common types of thyroid cancer are papillary cancers, follicular, medullary, and anaplastic. Papillary carcinoma is the most common type of thyroid cancer and constitutes 85%, with follicular making up the most of the majority, around 12%. Medullary is quite rare, and thankfully anaplastic is even rarer. So how do thyroid nodules present? The majority of them are asymptomatic. In terms of symptoms, patients may say that they notice a lump. They may feel a lump in the throat on swallowing. They can be painful, but this is rare. And they can be toxic, so they can produce thyroid hormone and give symptoms of hyperthyroidism. They can also be found incidentally on imaging, and pet hot nodules um, have about a 60% risk of malignancy. In terms of a history for a thyroid nodule, you want to ask questions about the nodule itself and whether it's symptomatic, and you also want to ask questions about risk factors for malignancy and whether it's functioning. So in terms of the nodule itself, you want to know when the patient noticed it, how fast it's been growing whether it's tender, and any associated symptoms such as change in voice, difficulty swallowing, shortness of breath, or wheeze. And then in terms of history, you want to ask questions about hyper or hypothyroidism. Risk factors for malignancy that you want to ask about include a history of head or neck irradiation, a family history of thyroid cancer in a first-degree relative or another cancer syndrome, and whether they have an underlying benign 
thyroid disease process that's already known about, such as Hashimoto's or Graves' disease, which both increase the risk of thyroid cancer. On clinical examination of a thyroid lump, you want to do a general examination looking for signs of hyper or hypothyroidism. And I'll briefly run through the examination and what you'd be looking for. So on a general inspection, you're looking for evidence of weight loss or obesity. You then move to the hands where you look for a fine tremor, any palmar erythema or sweatiness. In hypothyroidism, there may be cool, dry hands with swelling. And you also want to take a pulse, feeling for either a tachycardia or arrhythmia in hypothyroidism or a slow pulse in hypothyroidism. You can also check for palmar crease pallor with anemia being a potential sign in hypothyroidism. And you also want to look at the carpal tunnel and do a Tinel and Phelan sign looking for carpal tunnel syndrome, which can occur in hypothyroidism. You then want to move to the arms where you test the reflexes, which may be slow or fast, and look for proximal myopathy. Moving on to the face, you want to have a look at the eyes, looking specifically for signs of Graves' eye disease. So this may be exophthalmos, chemosis, corneal ulceration or conjunctivitis. You may see a thyroid stare, lid retraction where you can see the whites of the eyes, or lid lag. And then on the neck, you want to perform an examination of the thyroid. So you want to look generally to see if you can see any enlargement and ask the patient to swallow, looking both from the front and from the side. You then want to perform um, palpation from behind, feeling for any nodularities, single nodules, diffuse enlargement of the gland and any tenderness. You may, if you do find a nodule, want to further characterize that and see whether there's any evidence of involvement of surrounding structures. And you can also auscultate the gland and listen for a brewy. You finish the examination by looking at the legs for any evidence of pretibial myxedema, which are firm elevated dermal nodules, and any evidence of pitting edema. The next step in your investigation of a thyroid nodule should be some blood tests. You want to look at the TSH and T3 and T4. You also want to check calcium, vitamin D and PTH and consider thyroid antibody tests in the appropriate clinical situation. Calcitonin and CEA are not routinely recommended for workup of a thyroid nodule unless there's a strong family history of medullary thyroid cancer. Your next step is going to be some imaging. The first step in investigation of the thyroid is always an ultrasound of the thyroid and cervical lymph nodes. And the reporting of the finding or appearance of a thyroid nodule should be reported according to the TIRADS system. And this stands for Thyroid Imaging Reporting and Data System. And basically, this looks at five different areas and gives a score for the appearance of the nodule in each of these different areas. And then the number of points that you get combined with the size of the nodule determines what your either follow-up imaging or biopsy should be. The five areas they look at include the composition, echogenicity, shape, margin, and presence of echogenic foci within the nodule. So under composition, you get zero points if it's a cystic or almost completely cystic lesion, and you also get zero points if it's spongiform. You get one point if it's mixed, solid, and cystic, 
and you get two points if it's solid or almost completely solid. The echogenicity, you get zero points if it's anechoic, one point if it's hyperechoic or isoechoic, two if it's hypoechoic, and three if it's very hypoechoic. In terms of the shape, you get zero points if it's wider than tall and three points if it's taller than wide. For the margin, you get no points if it's got a smooth or an ill-defined margin, two points if it's lobulated or irregular, and three if there's presence of extra thyroidal extension. And then the last area they look at is echogenic foci. So you get zero points if there's no or there's large comet tail artifacts. You get one point if there's macro calcifications, two for peripheral rim calcifications, and three for punctate echogenic foci. So the more points that you get for something, the more likely that that radiological feature is something that's seen in a malignancy. So if you have no points, then this is a TIRADS-1, and this is considered a benign lesion and no FNA is required. If you have two points, this is considered a TIRADS-2 lesion. It's not suspicious and no FNA is required. If you have three points, this is considered a TIRADS-3, which is mildly suspicious. And because it's mildly suspicious, you would only do an FNA if it's very large, so if it's more than two and a half centimetres. If it's more than one and a half centimetres, then you would follow it with an ultrasound. If you get four to six points, then this is considered a TIRADS-4, which is moderately suspicious. And so you would do an FNA if it's more than one and a half centimetres in size. And if you get seven points or more, then this is a TIRADS-5, which is highly suspicious. And you would do an FNA if it's more than a centimetre in size, and you would follow them if they're more than half a centimetre in size. So just going through that again, TIRADS-1 to 5. So TIRADS-1 is benign, 2 is not suspicious, and then 3, 4, 5 is mildly, moderately, and highly suspicious. So just to summarise, some of the features that would be suspicious and suggest a malignancy include the presence of microcalcifications, which is basically the ultrasound image demonstration of the somoma bodies, which we'll talk about later, seen on histopathology for a papillary thyroid cancer. If there's coarse calcifications, these can be benign, but they can also be associated with medullary thyroid cancer. If there's peripheral calcifications or eggshell calcification, these can also be associated with malignancy, but it's a lower risk. If there's evidence of a solid lesion, local invasion, irregular borders, a hypoechoic lesion that's taller than wide, which suggests a lack of compressibility, increased vascularity, or any associated lymphadenopathy, you have to be worried that this is a malignancy. And in terms of the TIRADS, it is still just a guideline. So you may have a TIRADS-5 lesion that's only 7 millimeters, which means you wouldn't necessarily biopsy it, but it's close to the trachea or recurrent laryngeal nerve. And in that case, you need to consider the likelihood of that if it is a cancer progressing and making it more difficult to remove. So you'd consider having a lower threshold to biopsy that sort of lesion. In terms of the lymph nodes, features in the lymph nodes that would make you suspicious that they're involved include lymphadenopathy, so increased size, 
microcalcifications in the lymph nodes, cystic degeneration, if they're of a round shape, if they've got loss of the fatty hilum. And if any of these features are present, then you need to do a fine needle biopsy of the lymph node. And they also send it for what's called thyroglobulin washings, which is where you basically do the FNA and then you flush some fluid through the needle that you used for the FNA and put that onto a um, into a sample collection pot and they test that for thyroglobulin, which shouldn't be in the lymph nodes. But if there's a uh, thyroid cancer in the lymph node, then that will be positive. After your ultrasound, the other types of imaging studies you could consider for a thyroid nodule include a nuclear medicine scan. This should only be done selectively and only if the thyroid function tests are abnormal with a suppressed TSH. And the options include a technetium-99 protectinitate scan or a radioactive iodine scan. These two scans will help you discriminate between Graves' disease, which has diffuse uptake, a toxic multinodular goiter with patchy uptake, or a toxic thyroid nodule or solitary toxic nodule. Hot nodules are almost always benign and a biopsy of a hot nodule is often misleading because due to the overactivity of that area, the cells will look abnormal and can be mistaken for a malignancy. In terms of other investigations, you might consider a CT scan selectively if you want to get more information about the gland itself and its structure, especially if you're worried about retrosternal extension. If there's uh, signs of airway obstruction, you want to have a look at any tracheal deviation or narrowing. And also, if it looks like an advanced malignancy, it may give you extra information about local invasion or lymphadenopathy. So we've talked about when to do an FNA of a thyroid nodule. We would do an FNA for a TIRADS 3 if it's more than 2.5 centimetres, TIRADS 4 if it's more than 1.5 centimetres, and TIRADS 5 if it's more than 1 centimetre in size, but also if it's less than 1 centimetres in size but there's suspicious ultrasound features or associated lymphadenopathy, you may also consider doing an FNA. An FNA is useful to confirm the diagnosis. It helps you plan your surgery in regards to a lobectomy or a total thyroidectomy, as well as whether or not to do a central lymph node dissection, which we'll talk about later. In terms of an FNA, the cytology reporting system for thyroid FNA is called the Bethesda classification. The Bethesda classification gives you a result in one of six categories. Category one is a non-diagnostic or unsatisfactory result. The risk of malignancy in this group is still one to four percent, but it means that not enough cells have been aspirated and you need at least three clusters of more than 20 cells in order to have a diagnostic FNA. In this situation, you want to repeat the FNA with ultrasound guidance, and then if it's still non-diagnostic, then your management will depend on your clinical suspicion and the ultrasound appearance. Bethesda 2 is a benign, non-malignant lesion. This is the commonest group that you'll see on an FNA of a thyroid nodule, and the risk of malignancy is very low. It's 0 to 3%. 
you may get this and a biopsy that tells you it's a colloid nodule, a hyperplastic adenoma or a thyroiditis. But you still want to follow up that nodule and repeat the ultrasound in 12 months with or without an FNA, as long as there's no other high risk features on ultrasound, just to be sure that you're not missing anything. A Bethesda 3 lesion is an indeterminate lesion, and this can either be a tipia of undetermined significance or a follicular lesion of undetermined significance. The risk of malignancy in this group is 5 to 15%, and it should be a minority of FNA results that give you a Bethesda 3 classification. This needs close follow-up, and you'd think about doing a repeat ultrasound and FNA at three months. Or if there's other high-risk features on the ultrasound, you may repeat the biopsy sooner or do a diagnostic hemithyroidectomy if you continue to get this result. A Bethesda 4 is a follicular neoplasm or suspicious for a follicular neoplasm, and this includes Herthel cell neoplasms. The risk of malignancy in this group is somewhere between 20 and 30%. And the interesting thing about follicular cancers is that the diagnosis of it being a follicular nodule or a follicular cancer has to do with whether there's evidence of capsular invasion or vascular invasion. And so you can't tell this from an FNA. You can only tell this once you've excised the nodule. So In these situations, you need to be suspicious that this could be a follicular cancer, and typically the management of these nodules would be a diagnostic hemithyroidectomy. Bethesda 5 is suspicious for malignancy, and the risk of malignancy is 60 to 75%, and usually this is relating to a papillary thyroid cancer. If only one or two characteristic features of papillary cancer are present, or there's not many cells, then this means that they can't make the diagnosis with certainty. And the characteristic features include nuclear inclusions or grooves, orphan Annie eyes, and somoma bodies. But you obviously won't see somoma bodies on an FNA. In this group, you want to treat it as a cancer and what operation you do and whether or not you do a central dissection will depend on the size of the nodule and also whether or not there's any lateral neck lymph node involvement. Bethesda 6 is a malignant biopsy result and the risk of malignancy is 97 to 99%. And again, you want to perform your operation as though this is a malignancy. So just quickly to run through that again, you get six categories for the Bethesda classification, one to six. One is non-diagnostic or unsatisfactory. Two is benign. Three is atypia of undetermined significance or follicular lesion of undetermined significance. Four is a follicular neoplasm or suspicious for follicular neoplasm. Five is suspicious for malignancy and six is malignant. So up until this point, I've sort of been talking about thyroid nodules and their workup in general. Before we move on to talking specifically about thyroid cancers, I just wanted to briefly mention benign thyroid nodule management. The management of a benign thyroid nodule or multiple benign thyroid nodules is dependent on the imaging characteristics, whether or not the patient is symptomatic, whether or not the nodule is active or toxic, and also the patient's preference. 
If the patient's symptomatic, then management is typically removal with an operation. And when I talk about symptomatic, I mean pressure symptoms. If the patient has a toxic nodule, then the options include medical management, radioactive iodine, or treatment with an operation. If the patient doesn't have any symptoms and the nodule is not toxic, then the management is typically monitoring of their thyroid function tests and of the nodule with ultrasounds at specific intervals. These intervals will depend on how suspicious the lesions are and their size and should be guided by the TIRADS classification. Some patients don't like having regular ultrasounds and don't like having needles into their thyroid, and they may opt to have surgery in order to avoid that follow-up. And also in patients who have high-risk features on ultrasound or who have risky history in terms of previous radiotherapy or a strong family history, you may consider an operation in those situations because you think that that patient has a high risk of progressing to a malignancy. So let's talk about thyroid cancer. Thyroid cancer is more common in women than in men, and its incidence is increasing. It's also more common in younger patients than older patients. And there's five main types of thyroid cancer. There's those that are considered differentiated thyroid cancers, and these arise from the thyroid follicular epithelial cells, and this includes papillary thyroid cancer and follicular thyroid cancers. There's also medullary thyroid cancer, which comes from the C cells, and undifferentiated thyroid cancers, which are anaplastic. And the last primary thyroid malignancy you can get is thyroid lymphoma. The papillary, follicular, and anaplastic all arise from the follicular cells of the thyroid gland. And the medullary cancers arise from the parafollicular C cells, which are the calcitonin-secreting cells of the thyroid. And lymphomas arise from the thyroid stroma. It's also very rare, but the thyroid can be a site of metastases from renal cell, breast, lung, and colon cancer. We've already talked about some potential signs and symptoms of a thyroid nodule. And with cancers, lumps or swellings are common. Some red flag symptoms include voice change due to invasion of the recurrent laryngeal nerve, stridor or difficulty breathing or shortness of breath, difficulty swallowing, and lymphadenopathy. And we've already mentioned that risk factors for cancer include neck radiation, low or high iodine intake, previous benign thyroid disease such as Graves or Hashimoto's, and it's thought that the long-term inflammation increases the risk of papillary cancers. I haven't mentioned that extremes of age, so less than 20 or more than 50, increase the risk of this nodule that you see being a cancer, and also low or high iodine intake. In terms of genetic history or genetic predispositions, there's some specific mutations that are associated with thyroid cancers. The most well-known of this is the MEN2A and 2B syndromes, which are a germline mutation in the RET proto-oncogene, which is located on chromosome 10. The other things to know is that a family history of papillary thyroid cancer has a four to 10 times increased risk of that person in the family developing it. 
And there's also an increased risk of thyroid cancer in Gardner's syndrome, which is associated with FAP, and Cowden's disease. We've already talked about the workup of thyroid cancer. So let's talk a little bit about the different types of thyroid cancer and how they're different from each other. Before I get into this, can I please suggest that you check out endocrinesurgery.net.au. This is a website created by Mr. Bill Fleming, who is an endocrine surgeon in Melbourne and previous college examiner. And it has so much information about endocrine pathologies that seriously pretty much was the basis to my uh, study for the fellowship exam. And the other thing that you should 100% check out, which I haven't mentioned yet, is the ATA guidelines. So this is the 2015 American Thyroid Association Management Guidelines for Adult Patients with Thyroid Nodules and Differentiated Thyroid Cancer. This is really what endocrine surgeons use to guide their practice and is what I think they're going to be wanting us to reference and answer questions from for our exam. So papillary thyroid cancer is the most common type of thyroid cancer. It's more common in females compared to males, and its common forms of spread are extrathyroidal extension and lymph node metastases. They love to ask questions about the histopathological features of a papillary thyroid cancer. And the answer to this is that you can see orphan any nuclei, and I would definitely look up a picture of this if you haven't seen it before. It's very scary. Nuclear pseudo-inclusions and grooves, and somoma bodies, which are calcifications. There are some different histopathological subtypes, which can be split into well-differentiated intermediate and poorly differentiated subtypes. And these different subtypes have to do with the prognosis as well. So well-differentiated subtypes that have a good prognosis include papillary microcarcinoma. And this basically just means that it's a papillary cancer that's less than one centimeter in size. Often it's found incidentally on thyroidectomy. And if you find it on a hemithyroidectomy, then you may not even need to do a completion thyroidectomy. Another subtype is the encapsulated variant, which is where there's a tumor capsule, but there's local invasion through it. A follicular variant, which is the most common subtype and has the same outlook as a classic papillary cancer. And there's also one called a Lindsay's tumor, which is a combination of an encapsulated and follicular papillary thyroid cancer. The next group is the intermediate group, which also has an intermediate prognosis. So this includes a solid or trabecular type, which is associated with a specific gene mutation, a RET PTC3 rearrangement. And it has a high degree of extrathyroidal extension and so higher rates of local recurrence. There's the diffuse sclerosing variant, which is often misdiagnosed as Hashimoto's thyroiditis and can be highly aggressive. And it has a dissemination of the tumor cells through the thyroid and prominent lymphocytic infiltrate. There's the tall cell variant, which is quite an aggressive and rapidly growing tumor and most commonly found in the elderly. 
It typically has a BRAF mutation and is large on presentation with extrathyroidal extension and vascular invasion. And the columna variant is the last of the intermediate variants. This is rare and can be aggressive or can be indolent. And the last type is the poorly differentiated type, which is an insular papillary thyroid cancer. Luckily, these are very rare. The next most common thyroid cancer is follicular thyroid cancer. And these tumors are often well differentiated and have a capsule. So they look very different on ultrasound from a papillary thyroid cancer. I would definitely suggest having a look at some pictures of how these appear on ultrasound. They're typically solitary compared to papillary, which are often multifocal. And the feature that makes it a follicular cancer, as I've already mentioned, is that it has capsular or vascular invasion. That's what makes it a malignancy and not just a follicular nodule. And that's why you have to excise the whole thing before you know what it is. And follicular cancer spreads predominantly via hematogenous means, not to lymph nodes. In terms of histopathological subtypes, there's a minimally invasive follicular thyroid cancer, which is where there's a solid tumor with a thick capsule and some capsular invasion. Widely invasive follicular thyroid cancer is where there's infiltration of the capsule, but also adjacent thyroid tissue and blood vessels. And these are highly aggressive with a poor survival. The other histopathological type you may come across is a Herthel cell tumor. And this is an encapsulated tumor containing more than 75% oncocytic cells. And oncocytic cells stain pink under the microscope because they have high rates or high numbers of mitochondria. And they also have very bizarre looking nucleoli. They can be malignant or benign, but a third of them are malignant. And the higher likelihood of being malignant if they're large, so more than four centimeters, and if the patient is older. It has a higher likelihood of nodal metastases than the other types of follicular cancer. So you may consider nodal dissection in these cases. And the other important thing to know about Herthel cell tumors is that they're not as likely to uptake iodine and therefore are less likely to be responsive to radioactive iodine treatment. And they're diagnosed as malignant in the same way that a follicular cancer is, so if there's capsular or vascular invasion. The next type of thyroid cancer to talk about is medullary thyroid cancer. Unlike the previous two we've talked about, medullary cancers arise from the parafollicular C cells of the thyroid, which you might remember are those ones that come from the neural crest from the fourth and fifth branchial pouch that join the thyroid later in development and their remnant of where they join in is the tubercle of Zucker candle. The parafollicular C cells produce calcitonin in the thyroid. And so the interesting thing about these ones is that calcitonin is a marker of cancer activity and can be measured as a tumor marker. And for medullary thyroid cancer, we also measure CEA as a tumor marker. Medullary thyroid cancer is also associated with the hereditary syndromes MEN2A and 2B. MEN stands for multiple endocrine neoplasia for those that haven't heard of it before. And I've mentioned this is a mutation in the RET proto-oncogene on chromosome 10. 
MEN2A is associated with medullary thyroid cancer, pheochromocytoma, and parathyroid hyperplasia. And MEN2B is associated with medullary thyroid cancer, but usually at a very early age and very aggressive phenotype and is also associated with pheochromocytomas. And they can also get um, other things such as Hirschsprung's disease and mucosal neuromas. So the trick here when you're in the exam, if they ask you about a patient who has a medullary thyroid cancer, before you jump into taking it out and doing an operation for the cancer, you need to be taking a history of family members with any similar cancers or pheochromocytomas, and also a history of any sudden deaths, such as during childbirth or surgery. And then you want to check the patient for a pheochromocytoma with plasma metanephrines or 24-hour urinary catecholamines to make sure that they're not going to die on the table with a pheo when you try to take out their medullary thyroid cancer. And then you also want to check because MEN2A is associated with parathyroid hyperplasia, you want to check their calcium, PTH and vitamin D levels. You also want to refer all patients with medullary thyroid cancer for genetic testing for a RET mutation. The other thing I mentioned was measuring calcitonin as a tumor marker. And the interesting thing about calcitonin is that it is actually representative of the volume of disease that these patients have. And we'll talk a little bit later about this guiding whether or not you do lymph node dissections. And also you should consider staging if the calcitonin level is very high, such as over 500. Medullary thyroid cancer spreads to lymph nodes early in the disease, and the higher the T-stage and higher the calcitonin levels, the more likely that the lateral nodal compartment is involved. And it spreads late to distant organs with metastatic disease, commonly to the liver, bone, brain, and adrenal gland. The other thing to know about medullary thyroid cancer that makes it different from follicular and papillary, apart from all the other things we just talked about, is that because it doesn't come from the follicular cells, it comes from the C cells. So it doesn't actually concentrate iodine. So radioactive iodine has no role in the management of medullary thyroid cancer. On histopathology, medullary thyroid cancer has single discohesive cancer cells that will stain positive for calcitonin, chromogranin, and CEA, and they won't stain for thyroglobulin because they're not from the follicular cells. The second last type I'm going to talk about is the anaplastic thyroid cancer. Every endocrine surgeon you talk to will have a story about a anaplastic thyroid cancer. These tumors are very rare but are so aggressive and it seems unfair that most thyroid cancers have an incredibly good survival with 25-year survivals usually being used to talk about survival of these cancers, but anaplastic has a zero one-year survival. Anaplastic cancers are a type of de-differentiated thyroid cancer. They usually present with a suddenly increasing thyroid mass with fast progressing compressive symptoms, local invasion of the trachea and esophagus, recurrent laryngeal nerve, larynx, carotid, etc. And it metastasizes early to the lung, bone and brain. 
And because it's de-differentiated, it doesn't take up iodine. So radioactive iodine doesn't work. The management of anaplastic thyroid cancer depends on whether it's small and localized to the thyroid or whether it's unresectable or systemic. Severin incidentally found small intrathyroidal anaplastic thyroid cancer, a total thyroidectomy and adjuvant treatment should be considered, with adjuvant treatment including chemotherapy such as 5-FU, doxorubicin, cisplatin or paclitaxel and radiotherapy treatment locally. For resectable loco-regional disease where you can achieve at least an R1 resection, you can consider a total thyroidectomy and therapeutic lymph node dissection and then adjuvant chemotherapy and radiotherapy. For unresectable loco-regional disease, radiotherapy and potentially chemotherapy can be considered and you can also sometimes do an isthmus division in order to free the airway from the tumour. And if there's evidence of systemic disease, then radiotherapy and palliative care are really the mainstay of treatment. As I've mentioned, the prognosis of this disease is very poor and it has a poor response to treatment. The last type of thyroid malignancy to talk about is thyroid lymphoma, which is also very rare. And the three most common subtypes of primary thyroid lymphoma are diffuse large B-cell, marginal zone B-cell lymphoma or MOLT, and mixed type. And you can also get non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in the thyroid. There is a higher incidence of thyroid lymphoma in patients who have pre-existing Hashimoto's thyroiditis, again thought to be because of that long-standing inflammatory response. The staging is stage 1, 2, 3, and 4. Stage 1 is where the lymphoma is just within the thyroid. Stage 2 is within the thyroid and the regional lymph nodes. Stage 3 is where it's both sides of the diaphragm, and stage 4 is where it's disseminated. And the treatment of thyroid lymphoma is typically local radiotherapy, which has a very good complete response rate and is used when it is limited to the thyroid only. If it's not just in the thyroid, then systemic chemotherapy is used, typically CHOP chemotherapy, which is cyclophosphamide, doxorubicin, vincristine, and prednisolone. And surgery is really limited to a proper biopsy and confirming the diagnosis. Before we move into talking about the management of the different types of thyroid cancer, I wanted to mention the staging of thyroid cancer. And there is an AJCC TNM system for thyroid cancer, and this is for all thyroid cancers except for anaplastic, which are considered T4 at the time of diagnosis, with T4A being within the thyroid and T4B being if it's outside of the thyroid. So for all other cancers, the T1 tumors are less than two centimeters and limited to the thyroid. T2 are two to four centimeters. T3 are more than four centimeters with minimal extrathyroidal extension. And T4A is where that's a moderately advanced tumor of any size, extending beyond the thyroid capsule to invade subcutaneous soft tissues, larynx, trachea, esophagus, or recurrent laryngeal nerve. 
And T4B is an even more advanced tumour where it's invading the prevertebral fascia, encases the carotid or mediastinal vessels. N1 is split into N1A and N1B. N1A is essentially the station six lymph nodes, which are the pretracheal, paratracheal, and prelaryngeal. And N1B are any other lymph nodes, such as stations one, two, three, four, or five, or retropharyngeal or superior mediastinal station seven lymph nodes. And M1 is distant metastases. In terms of the staging um, and what stage one to four, it's interesting that for differentiated thyroid cancer, they stage patients according to their age. So for patients that are less than 55 years old, they have an incredibly good prognosis. And so they can be any T stage and any N stage, but no metastases, and they're considered stage one. And if they have any metastases, then they're considered stage two. So for people older than 55 years old, the staging is different. So stage one is T1 or 2 and N0. Stage two is T1, 2 or 3 with N1A or N1B. Stage three is T4A and any N category. And stage 4A is where it's T4B with any N category. And stage 4B is where it's any T or N, but there is distant metastases. And that completes this first part of this episode on thyroid nodules and thyroid cancer. I had initially done this episode as one with the management, but it turned into way big of a monster episode for me to publish all in one go. So look out for next week's episode on the management of thyroid cancer. Once again, please leave me a review. I really love to read them. Subscribe to the program and leave me a rating. It makes it easier for others to find. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying! <laughs>